Happy New Year, Maranatha Grace. It's great to see all of you. It's great for my wife and, and me to be here with you on this first day of, uh, of this new year. What a great way to start uh, this year, worshiping the Lord with old friends. And, uh, and some of you, like, like, uh, like Pastor John said, if I don't know you, my name's Rob, um, pastor of a church up in Tarrytown, New York, just across the river. Um, the church that I help pastor, New Hope Fellowship, we just recently finished a study in the book of Titus. And if you've never read the book of Titus, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a partner of his in ministry and a friend of his who he had left to, to care for a, a, a probably a network of house churches on the, the Greek island of Crete. The, the central message of that letter to Titus seems to be this. It's a simple message, but it's a profound and important message. It's this. The gospel leads to godliness. The gospel leads to godliness. The Apostle Paul keeps hitting this idea again and again as he goes through the letter to Titus. In other words, he's saying, believing in the Lord Jesus, believing in him as Lord, believing that he is the, the Son of God who came into this world to rescue of people, and to redeem all of creation through his death and his resurrection, believing that gospel changes you. It changes you. It, believing that gospel starts you on a path toward looking and living more like Jesus. Slowly but surely, believing the gospel starts you on that journey of becoming more like Jesus. It, it, it starts you on a path towards living a godly life. The Apostle Paul uses that word godly a lot in this letter. And um, I know for some of us, maybe that, that's just, it's a very churchy word. If you grew up around church, you heard the word godly. I like the word Jesus-y. I like the word Jesus-y because it, 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 it communicates to me that to look like God, to be like God, really means to look like Jesus, to be like Jesus. And so if you want to know what godliness looks like, you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus lived, how he spoke, how he interacted with others, how he treated people, how he interacted with his father. Believing the gospel will start us on the path towards living a Jesus-y life. So verses 11 to 14 of Titus chapter 2, they, they might be the, the central passage in this whole letter. In my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. And I thought that perhaps this would be a great passage for us to spend some time in as we start this new year. I hope you will agree that this is a good play. After, afterwards, it's all said and done here today. I hope you'll be able to look at chapter 2, verse 11 to 14 of Titus and say, yes, this is a great place for me to, to sit and meditate and spend some time as I begin this new year. Would you open up to Titus chapter 2 if you haven't already, if you have a Bible, a device? We're going to read from verse 11. I'm just going to read that first line. It says there, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God appeared. When did the grace of God appear? It appeared when God the Son was born as a child. We just sang of that birth, of the incarnation. He was born as a child who would grow up to die for the sins of his people. And then he would rise again on the third day. The grace of God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And if you look at verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, We are now waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage is talking about two appearings of God. The initial appearing, the first appearing of God's grace when Jesus was born as a child into this world, and this future appearing, this future advent when Jesus will return. He will appear again, not in humility, but in glory on a day that no one but God himself knows. So, the grace of God, that is the the love, the kindness, the favor of God, it appeared when Jesus first came in weakness. And then the glory of God, his majesty, his power, will appear when Jesus comes back to judge and to reign and make all things new. Everyone's going to see him. And there will be no doubt anywhere on this planet that he is our great God and Savior. So so this whole passage from verse 11 down to 14, it tells us a lot about God's grace. More specifically, specifically, it tells us about what God's grace does. What God's grace does. So that's the question that I'm hoping we can ask today and answer today. What does God's grace do? If it appeared when Jesus was born and it was was showered on us through the life, death, and, and resurrection of Jesus... What does that grace do for us, in us, to us? Well, according to this passage, the grace of God does at least two things. It saves us and it trains us. It saves us and it trains us. So that's what we're going to look at today, okay? How the grace of God saves us and trains us. So the first thing it does is it saves us. Look at verse 11 one more time. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace rescues all sorts of people. All sorts. But what does that grace of God save all sorts of people from? How would you answer that question if I were to ask you, what does God's grace save you from? If you've read the Bible, if if you've been around church for a while, you might say, God's grace saves us from the penalty of sin. And you'd be right. Brother Tom alluded to this powerfully earlier today about how the the grace of God saves us, rescues us. It takes that cup of God's wrath away from us, rescues us from the penalty of sin. Everyone who receives the gift of God's grace by believing in Jesus, he he or she is rescued from the eternal consequences of sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, which means that the penalty for everything Every evil thing, said or done or thought, and really every good thing left undone, the penalty for all that is it's death. It's eternal separation from God and the experience of his wrath. God's grace saved you from that if you believed in Jesus. If, if God's grace had not saved you from that penalty of sin, then Christ's return would mean judgment for you. It would not be a matter of hope It would be a matter of doom for you. Christ's return would mean judgment and wrath for you. But God's grace has saved you from the penalty of sin. Look at what Paul says in the very next chapter, in chapter 3 of Titus and verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's grace again, right? That's grace. 
Verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. And look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what's he saying in chapter 3? He's saying, by grace, God justifies us. That is, he frees us from our own guilt. He makes us his children who receive the inheritance of, of eternal life. So yes, if I were to ask you that question, you were to say, God's grace rescues us, saves us from the penalty of sin, you'd be 100% right. It's there, it's all over there in chapter 3. But, but, that's not what Paul is actually talking about in chapter 2, in our passage today. He's not talking about how the grace of God saves us from the penalty of sin. Look again at chapter 2. I'll look at verse 14, where he says that Jesus Christ, the Savior, who gave himself for us, that means he died for us, to redeem us, right? That means to rescue, to save us. From what? From all lawlessness, verse 14 says. He gave himself to save us, redeem us from all lawlessness. You see, it says here that the grace of God rescues us from a life of flaunting God's laws and ignoring God's ways. That's the kind of life that we would be leading, but God saved us from that. He saved us from living a lawless life. So you see, here's what Paul is telling us. Not only does God's grace save us from the penalty of sin, that's chapter 3, but it saves us from the power of sin, that's chapter 2. In fact, look at the rest of chapter 2, verse 14. It says, yes, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and, and, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace saves us from living a life that's self-absorbed. He saves us by his grace to be his and, and to live a life that's ruled not by ourselves, but it's actually ruled by him, to be his people. A, a people who are no longer committed to to doing things our way, according to our desires, according to our goals. He saved us from all that. His grace saved us from all that to be his people who are passionate about doing what he calls good. That's what it means to be zealous about something. It's to be passionate, committed, deeply committed to something. He saved us to be deeply committed to what he calls Good. So you see, the grace of God didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. It saved us from that overwhelming, controlling power of sin. That's something that God promised he was going to do many, many, many years ago. All the way back in Jeremiah 31, God said that he was going to do this. He said, I'm going to rescue people for myself. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Way back in Jeremiah 33, he's saying, I'm going to rescue people, not only from the penalty, but from the controlling power of sin. They're going to live like my people because they are my people. They're going to have their, my law written on their hearts to guide them, to direct them to shape their character and their lives. Way back in Ezekiel 37, God says, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, 
But I will, look, he says, I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned. God promises in Ezekiel 37. And when God's grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, this promise became a reality for everyone who believes in him. God promised it. And when Jesus appeared, God delivered on that promise. If you have experienced God's saving grace, you don't need to sin anymore. You don't need to. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Does that sound kind of weird for me to even say that? Does it sound heretical for me to say that you don't need to sin anymore? I didn't say you're not going to sin anymore. You still do sin. And so do I. And you will sin again. I don't doubt it. If I had to bet, I'm betting that everyone in this room is going to sin again before the day's over, maybe even before the sermon is over. Sin still has influence over you, doesn't it? Sin still has an attraction. It still tempts you. It allures you. But, but, sin does not have the same power it once had over you if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus as Lord. God's grace saved you from sin's control. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's grace has saved you from that overwhelming, controlling influence of sin? God's grace saves you not just from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. God's grace gives you God's power. God's power. You may at times find it hard to believe that. We, we, we often live as if sin still has authority and power to tell us what to do. I know I often live that way. So that when temptation comes, sometimes I think, oh, it's useless. What's the point? It's who I am. These patterns of sin, these particular attitudes, the, these, these patterns of behavior and speech, they're so deeply ingrained in me, I think sometimes that I have no power to overcome them. Titus 2 tells me that when the grace of God appeared, it saved people, including me, including you, if you've trusted in Christ, from lawlessness, from the overwhelming control of sin's power in your life. We live as if sin has authority over us and the power to tell us what to do. That's why we need reminding. That's why we need reminding that God's grace has freed you from the power of sin once for all. So that when, so that when the temptation to fall into old patterns of behavior and speech and thought or whatever it is for you, when the temptation is there, when the allure is there, and it would seem so natural to, to fall into that, we need to remember, wait a second, wait a second, I've been freed. I've been freed from the power of this sin. Sometimes I think we, we deal with sin the way um, if you were perhaps once enslaved by a human, if you were owned by a, a slave master, and one day you were to be set free, rescued, redeemed from slavery. Don't you think sometimes the, that the attitude, the, the way of thinking of a slave, it might be so deeply ingrained in you that it's hard for you to live as a free person. So much so that if one day you happen to run into your old slave master and that slave master told you what to do, you might actually be inclined to obey him because you're scared of him. Because for years, anything he told you to do, you had to do. And so when you see him now, you cower, you wonder, what's he going to do to me? You forget that he has no authority over you anymore. 
You've been freed. You've been freed. And not only that, but God's grace right now, right now, is steadily, not only do we need reminding that God's grace has, has rescued you from the power of sin, we need to know that right now, right now, God's grace is steadily training you to live in the reality of that newfound freedom. God's grace is training you and training me to live in the reality of that newfound freedom. That's why we're saying, that's why Paul says, the grace of God saves, but it also trains. It trains us. That's the last thing we're going to look at. God's grace trains us. Look at verse, verse 12. Verse 12. Well, first in verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then verse 12, he says, training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. God's grace teaches us patiently again and again and again. It's teaching us now to say no to what God calls evil, to say no to what God calls unwise, even when the whole world seems to disagree. And God's grace trains us, teaches us to say yes to a way of life that is self-controlled and upright and godly. I already said, and I, I, I beat that dead horse. I kept saying it. He freed us from the power of sin. Yes. But, but those old habits, they, they die very hard, don't they? Old habits of thought and speech and behavior. Oh, goodness. So God's grace has to keep training us. Training us to say no to sin and yes. Yes to what looks like Jesus. Yes to what honors Jesus. And so if, if God's grace is training us, a, a good question for us to ask is, what, 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 what kind of students, are, are, are we diligent students of God's grace? <laughs> are we, like, like in, in professional athletics, sometimes they talk about certain players as being coachable, teachable. When the coach wants to train them, they're ready to listen. They want to be trained. And then there are other athletes that are perhaps less coachable. They think they got it. They know what they're doing. They don't need to listen to instruction. At least they don't think they do. And as a result, they never grow, they never develop as they could, and they never reach their potential. So the question for us is, as God's grace continues to train us to renounce, to say no to what is ungodly, and to say yes to what is godly, are we trainable? Are, 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 we, are we diligent, attentive, humble students of God's grace? Or are we the kind of students that I was through most of my uh, adolescence, distracted students who think they don't really need this, not really listening? How are you responding to the training influence of God's grace? God's grace is training us to live Jesus-y lives, to have Jesus-y character and convictions and conduct right now. How are you responding to that training that God's grace is exerting on you? One of the ways, by the way, because you might be asking, how, how exactly does God's grace train us? Well, one of the ways that God's grace trains us is by teaching us that we no longer belong to ourselves. Remember, he, he made us to be a people for his own possession. And he continues to train us to live that way. We need to keep learning that we are not our own, but, 
We were bought with a price. So God's saving grace is also training grace. And not only, not only does God's grace train us to reject sin and to pursue godliness, but here's the other thing that Titus 2, 11 to 14 tells us. God's grace trains us to wait. To wait. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It says there that God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace teaches us to patiently, eagerly await the future return of Jesus. And by the way, the waiting we're talking about here is not passive. Waiting sounds passive, right? We might think of waiting as like, what do you do when you wait? You do nothing. What do you do when you're in a waiting room, right? You're in a doctor's office. You don't do, I don't do anything in a waiting room. I scroll through my news feed, maybe. If there's a magazine there, maybe I'll pick that up. Kill time. Why? Because you're not there to do anything but wait. And we might think that waiting for Jesus implies killing time, too. So we might think that when God's grace trains us to wait for the appearing of Jesus, God's just training us to be to sit still and be patient. Sit still, shut up. Right? Like the, the parent in a in a waiting room at a pediatrician's office with their three-year-old. And they're just hoping that that three-year-old can just sit still and not break anything until the nurse comes in and calls their name. And so that 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 three-year-old doesn't have to be productive, doesn't have to do anything during the fifth, five, 10, 20 minutes that we're waiting in that. All they have to do is just sit still and don't, don't embarrass me in this doctor's office. Don't break the aquarium. Don't hit any of the other kids. Sit still. We might think that yeah, waiting for Jesus' return is just a matter of killing time and, and I guess behaving pretty well and just waiting for him to return. As, as if life in this present age, between Jesus' first appearance and his, and his future appearance, as if life in this present age like, doesn't matter. But it does matter. It matters profoundly. For one thing, it's, it's in the waiting for Jesus' return that we learn to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. I, um, I grew up in a, in a Brazilian household and on special occasions, like, for instance, a birthday or something like that, we would sometimes go to a certain uh, Brazilian restaurant that, that we, we really liked. Um, and, and we would, at that place, we would enjoy uh, one of the, the great contributions that, that uh, my parents' nation of Brazil has made to the world. It's the contribution of rodízio. I don't know if any of you know what rodízio is, but rodízio is where, uh, for one price, you get all you can eat, endless assortment, of, of grilled meats, salty and savory and delicious. And the one thing that, that Hodizio taught me as a young boy was the art of waiting. You see, because if you've ever been to one of these, one of these, one of these restaurants, you know that, um, and if you don't know, here, I'm, I'm give you a pro tip. Early on in, in a meal, the, the waiters, they, they bring out the, the cheaper, lower quality meats 
at least the places I went to did. And, and inexperienced customers would, would fill up on those cheaper, lower quality meats. And some real rookies, they would even go to the, to the buffet table and fill up on rice and all these other you know, starchy foods and, and stuff like that. So, so sadly, what would happen is later on, when the waiters made their rounds with, with, with the juicier, more, more delectable meats, these rookies no longer had room to eat anymore. They were stuffed. They had wasted their appetites when they should have been waiting. And I made that mistake too. Eventually, I learned to wait. And it was in the waiting that I learned some self-control. I learned to say no thank you to some of the foods that they were bringing around. Even though I really, I was hungry, I wanted to eat it, right? So they bring around the, the grilled, uh, you know, they bring around some, some sausage or some grilled turkey or chicken. And I, and I wanted to eat it, but I said, no, not to, I will not. No, thank you. It's all fine. The food is good, right? It's great. But I knew what I was waiting for, and it was better than turkey. And I knew that in order to enjoy those better meats, in order to, in order to maximize value and get the most for what we paid, I had to pass. I say no. You see, waiting taught me to say no to what was less valuable so that I could later say yes to what was better. And so it is with God's grace. It trains us, teaches us to wait for the appearing of God, our Savior, our King. And in the waiting, we learn to say no to what does not align with the will of our King, the King that we're waiting for. We learn to say no to those things that have no place in that kingdom that we're waiting for. We're waiting for that kingdom. And we learn to say no to what spoils our appetite for him and his kingdom. I think we could draw up a long list of things that distract us and ruin our appetite for the king and his kingdom. As we wait, we also learn to say yes to what's better. You see, what, what, what we do in between Christ's uh, appearances is not meaningless. He, he hasn't just told us to sit tight until he shows up. The, the one that we are waiting for, he's told us that, that he saved us to be a people who, quote, are zealous for good works. That means he wants us to be, he saved us to be, and now he's training us to be people who are serious about, who are passionate about doing what is good right now. Remember, verse, verse 12, Titus 2, he says, we're being trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? In this present age, while we wait. Again, again, imagine waiting in that pediatrician's office. And the focus there is just, uh, sit still, kill time. God our Father says, no, 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 we're not going to kill time while you're here. When Paul talks, to, talks about how God's grace is teaching us, it's teaching us to live in this present age actively, passionately, pursuing good works. According to the Bible, if you believe in the second coming of Jesus, you will devote yourself to good works. And 
those good works, we don't have time to look at it, but if you look through the, the, the letter to Titus, you'll see that that term good works comes up over and over and over again. Paul keeps talking about it. And we see that, that good works includes, it includes extending generosity and compassion and, and service to other people. It doesn't just mean behave well. Don't do any damage. Keep your hands clean from sin. It's not just that. It's about living with generosity and compassion to serve others. Again, what does he say? He says, you, he says he's calling us, he's training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And, and that word upright, when you think upright, what do you think? Honest, nice, respectable. The Bible word for upright means more than that. It, it means just. You see, the, the word upright isn't just about inward, private morality. Don't lie, don't cheat. Keep your hands clean from sin. It includes that, but the word upright includes more than that. It's about getting your hands dirty to care for and protect others. I'll give you an example. The Bible calls Job an upright and righteous person. Job is, is, is held before us as one of the greatest, most upright and just humans who have ever lived. What made him upright and righteous? No doubt he was privately moral. I, I believe he was an honest guy. But he's also called upright. Job 29, 12 tells us, he says, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. He says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. You see, Job, this upright man, held up to us an example of uprightness, so upright that it, it, caught, it caught Satan's attention, apparently, in the, in the story that we read about Job. This upright man sought the good of others, even when he didn't know them personally. And that's what uprightness looks like. Old Testament scholar named Bruce Watke writes these words. He says, in the Bible, just or upright, the just or the upright are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others. The unjust are willing to disadvantage others to advantage themselves, you see. So he's, he's painting this idea of justness or, or uprightness within the, the, the context of community. He goes on, he says, quote, most people think of being unrighteous as lying or committing adultery. But unrighteousness goes beyond that. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good when it is in your power to act. Therefore, it is unrighteous to not feed someone when you have the power to do so. It is unrighteous to take so much income out of your business that your employees are paid poorly. It is unrighteous to be too busy with your own concerns to not look in on your elderly neighbors. End quote. It's a different way of thinking about unrighteousness, isn't it? Walkie gives these specific examples of, of unrighteousness and in contrast to, to uprightness and, and good works. And, and here's the reasoning, the logic behind why people, I, I believe this is Paul's reasoning in, in back in Titus, for why people who are eager for Christ's return should be upright and eager to do good works. Here's why. Because when Jesus appears, 
It'll be the end of suffering. It'll be the end of death and hunger and disease. It'll be the end of sin, both yours and others. It'll, it'll be the end of all needs. And so if you are eager for his appearing and for his kingdom to come, you don't wait for it passively. No, if we are eagerly waiting for his appearing, we will be passionate about what his appearing will bring with it. If we are eager for his return, then we will be passionate and zealous about not only making Jesus known now, but also pursuing justice and healing now and pushing back against sin and its effects now. We will be eager to call people to believe in Jesus and we'll be eager to love people whether they believe in Jesus or not. That's what God's grace teaches us in the waiting, in the waiting. Let's wrap this up here. Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us to save us and to train us both. Train us to say no to sin and yes to what's good and to wait eagerly and actively for his return. So I'm going to end with, with, uh, with two questions for us to ask ourselves as we start this new year. I hope that these questions are helpful, not, not burdensome and oppressive, but actually helpful um, and, and can be used by God to illuminate some things in our hearts and, and point us in the right direction as we begin a new year. So two questions. Here's the first one. What am I zealous for? In other words, what am I passionate and excited about? Good question to ask yourself. Some of us, some of us are zealous to earn money and save money. Some of us are zealous and eager to um, advance our careers. Uh, some of us maybe are, are zealous and passionate about proving ourselves to others. Maybe you're zealous about politics. I don't know. You're zealous about politics, zealous about sports, zealous about your kids' sports. <laughs> What, what would someone who knows you say that you're passionate about? The people who know you best, if they say, oh, I, oh, you know what gets them excited? You know what they are passionate about? What would they say it is? Some of you might say, I'm not passionate about anything. I'm jaded. I've lost all passion. I've lost all zeal. I'm too old. God's grace is intended to train us to be zealous, passionate for what he is passionate about. So, so I think it's helpful for us to ask, what am I excited about? What am I deeply committed to doing? And how does that line up with what God is committed to doing and what he is passionate about? And furthermore, what am I passionate about and committed to, and how is that shaping me? If I look honestly at what I'm really, really into and excited about and really care most deeply about and I'm pursuing with eagerness, when I look at that, how is that thing, that passion, influencing my family, my household? What is it telling them? What is it teaching them? And the last question I ask is this one. What, what am I waiting for? What are you waiting for? Remember what God's grace is training us to wait for. What are you waiting for? We're all waiting for something, you know. We all, we all operate Day to day, we press on day to day because we're hoping for something. We're expecting something, right? 
If you weren't expecting anything or hoping for anything or waiting for anything, you wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning. So you might press on week after week because you're waiting for, I don't know, the weekend. Because you're, you're, you're thinking, then I can rest. When the weekend comes, then I can do what I want. Then I can, I can kick back, get away from the madness and the pressure of my job. Or maybe you're waiting for a promotion, and that keeps you, that keeps you going. You press on because you know that if you work hard enough and you wait patiently enough, that, that new job is coming, a new position. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're a little further down the timeline. You're done thinking about promotions. You're thinking about retirement. And you're like, I, I'm just waiting for that. If I just keep going a little while longer, it'll be a reality. So you wait patiently and eagerly to retire. Because you say things will get better then. And depending on where you are in life, you're waiting for different things, right? Some of you, maybe you're waiting for a graduation. You're waiting for college. You're waiting for marriage. You're waiting for kids. And these are all very, very good things. But the question, again, is what do you find yourself eagerly waiting for? Because whatever it is that you're eagerly waiting for, it's, it's quite likely that that's the thing that's motivating you. It's driving you. God's grace teaches us to wait for the future appearing of Christ. To wait, above all, for the future appearance of Christ. And so the question we need to ask is, am I waiting for that? Am I eagerly waiting for him to return? Am I eagerly waiting for his glorious kingdom? For the inheritance? For the restoration of all things? All that's packed into the fact that he's returning? If so, that's going to shape what you pursue and get passionate about, won't it? In fact... Isn't it possible that some of us, we struggle to live Jesus-y lives? We struggle to be godly in the present age because we hardly ever even think about his future appearing. Much less do we eagerly wait for it. If you have experienced God's saving grace, you are also experiencing his training grace. So will you, with me, we can, we can do this together. We can humbly say, Lord, Lord, I submit all my interests to you, my passions, my desires, my plans. And as I enter this new year, Lord, teach me, teach me to care about what you care about, to pursue what you consider valuable and important. We can be honest with God. We can come and say, Lord, I, I treasure the wrong things. I get excited about the wrong things sometimes. I prioritize the wrong pursuits. But, but you said, Lord, you said that your grace teaches it trains. So teach me, teach me, Lord, to be committed to what you call good, to, to serving you and serving others in your name as I wait for the appearing of your kingdom. Perhaps these are prayers that we can bring before God as we start out this new journey through 2023. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, thank you for freeing us from the power of sin. Thank you for freeing us from sin's penalty and its power. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to live between the appearances of your Son, our King, and teach us to live well in this present age. Make us, make us willing students of grace, coachable, trainable people who want to respond and grow and be transformed. And so, Lord, as we enter this new year, make us zealous for what you deem good and eager for the appearing of your kingdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.